I'm Tobias Schiesler, cinematographer of Marini's Black Bottom, and this is the Good Creative Show. Hello and welcome to the Go Creative Show. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is Tobias Schleesler. He is the director of photography for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and so much more. Tobias, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. I am so excited to talk about this because this is a very unique movie, getting a lot of buzz. The acting is amazing. The sets look beautiful. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to mention our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. Find them at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And of course, remember to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. YouTube especially because we have exclusive content there for our subscribers. So hit subscribe. Uh, make sure you uh, hit the notification bell as well so you never miss an episode. And all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. All right, Tobias, welcome again. What a great movie. And, uh, you know, this is part of the um, the deal that Denzel Washington has for, I think it's like a 10-film deal or something with Netflix. Yes. Um, tell us about that and sort of your interest in this particular story. Um, well, I watched um, his movie, Fences, that he directed, and I loved it. And um, uh, that's when I really first got to know the work of August Wilson. And um, and I was, you know, I can really identify with that story, even though I didn't grow up in, in North America. But it's kind of a really kind of across the spectrum story that anyone can identify with, I think. And... Um, and then when I heard about um, that he's producing Moraine's Black Bottom, actually my agent, Lara Sackett from ICM, first kind of mentioned the project to me. And, um, but, you know, it is like you hear about it. She goes, I'm going to put you forward. I think it's going to be an incredible project. And it's uh, Todd Black is producing it with Denzel. And I had done, I've known Todd Black for a long time. He's a friend of mine. I've done uh, Pelham 123 with him, uh, with Tony Scott directing and Denzel actually acting in it. And um, so she put me forward. And, um, you know, I'm looking at my past movies, I wasn't quite sure if I'm the right person for this necessarily. But um, Todd's, you know, a good friend and a you know, really big supporter of my work that he put me forward towards George. And eventually I got the script, which was amazing to read. Yeah, I, I, it's always interesting to me when I see directors of photography kind of take these opportunities to try something really different. And I feel like this is one of those opportunities for you. I mean, looking at some of your previous work, Beauty and the Beast, Dreamgirls, Lone Survivor, mm -hmm. um, Friday Night Lights, Patriot's Day. Yes. I mean, this is a very different film. Does that excite you? It excites me a lot because I love, I mean, when you look at my past work, right, I really love working um, on all different kinds of movies and stories um, and with different directors. Um, you know, that, you know, I, I did Friday Night Lights and after that, I did Dreamgirls, which is a completely different movie. I did Lone Survivor, uh, which is a you know movie about Navy SEALs at war. And the next movie is Beauty and the Beast. I mean, you couldn't get any further from each other. <laughs> yeah. And I love this about it. And I love learning about those movies and about those stories. And um, obviously, Marini is a very intimate movie. It's all about acting. And... Um, 
And yes, when I read it, I went, oh my God, this is a challenge uh, that I haven't done before. Uh, was I scared a little bit about it? Yes. You know, every time you do something new that you're not comfortable with, you obviously have, you know, thoughts and maybe sometimes doubts whether you can pull it off. And, you know, reading Marini first, it was overwhelming, right? You read, you know, a, a monologue, dialogue scene over like uh, that Levy has, Jeff, that Jeffrey Boseman plays, uh, that goes over seven, eight minutes in the movie and it's one person talking and you're going, like, how am I going to make this visually interesting or how, how am I going to tell this story? And so, yes, when I first read it, as much as I loved it, as much as I was a little scared of it, I think, um, attacking it. And, and you know, I mean, it was one of those movies, a lot of times I read a script and I can see it all in front of me. I could see, but I couldn't really tell how is it going to play out, right? You have a, you know, the room was described as like this 20 by 20 foot basement, no light. It, originally there was, you know, it was written as there was not even a window there that we ended up putting in there, but uh, it was described as just like this dungeon and you have four actors in there and how are they going to move? What are they going to do? They have the instruments. They have this and that. I was, I really didn't, visually I couldn't quite see it yet, right? And that was actually one of the conversations I had with George when I had my interview with him. I was really frank with him. I said, like, you know, I'm, I love the story. Of, you know, I mean, obviously it's very timely and we have to tell that story and it's it, it's so emotional. But at the same time, I'm a little bit afraid of that I don't quite see it yet how I'm going to make, how we can make this visually compelling. And, um, you know, first thing he said to me, well, if you knew how to do it, why would you want to do it uh, again? Right. And I went like, oh, oh that's you know, great. It's a challenge. So it was like, wow, it's a good challenge. And, it, you know, it was interesting because then, you know, I started talking to my, DP friends or to my director friends saying, what am I going to do in this room? And everyone said like, hey, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to do something that's, uh, you know, obviously obviously very challenging. And so, yes, I was up for it. Uh, I was definitely scared of it. But I think that's, you know, that's the fun thing. I mean, I love going to work being, not being, but just being not so secure that I know always how to do something like I like to explore it a little bit, I like to push, push it a little bit that I, you know, it was like in the old days when you shot film, right? You pushed the film, you shot a little darker, you shot this and that, and, and you were scared every night going to bed, going like, well, I'm going to wake up in the morning and the lab reports come back and it might be a little too dark or it might be a little too bright. So, you know, that feeling I still love and a feeling of doing something that you're not that comfortable with is exciting to me. And to bring people up to speed, a lot of the movie takes place in this basement rehearsal space that is pretty small. And there's a lot of people crammed in there. And I think as as a viewer watching this thing and knowing that it, you know, is adapted from a stage play, so it really doesn't have a million locations to begin with. Um, mm -hmm. there, you, I think having that having that constraint of the space, it really makes you focus on the acting and the talent even more so. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for talent, but how does that translate to cinematography? I mean, that has got to be a challenge for you knowing that you're really not going to leave this room for a very, very long time. You need to keep it interesting. You need to make it captivating. And yes, a lot of that interest, you know, is on the shoulders of the actors, but a lot of it is on you too. So how do you deal with that uh, unique challenge? I know, I, and I and I thought it was a lot of it uh, on the visuals to keep it interesting and everything, and that was definitely something that you know 
we talked about in prep and how we'd be keeping it alive. But, you know, George had this explanation to me saying, like, think of it as a, think of this basement as a boxing ring. Think of, you know, your, uh, you know, these, these four characters being in their own corners and he actually put in four posts in each corner that kind of symbolized the corners of a, of a boxing ring. And he says, think of them like coming at each other, uh, but instead of fighting with gloves, they're fighting with words. And this is how I'm going to choreograph it. And, uh, that to me was like, okay, he's going to move the actors. He's going to, you know, there's going to be a dance with the actors, like a boxing fight. And, um, and George, you know, as he had a complete clear vision about that kind of choreography between the actors with the monologue that they had. Um, you know, he's, he's the kind of director he, came in every single morning an hour before anyone came in for example in the in this basement there was so much about choreography of the actors and the dialogue that he sat in this in in this basement in the mornings i usually come an hour early uh, just to get my head around what i'm going to do that day he was there before me just sitting in this room he didn't want to be interrupted by anyone and he just visualized every day what those scenes are going to be like and what the blocking is going to be like. And then he brought the actors in and, uh, you know, they performed in the rehearsals and it just became so clear. Like anything that I had doubt about became clear when these actors came on set, yeah. they performed the way he moved these actors. around. It became very clear suddenly like the camera has to be here. The camera needs to be at this place when Chadwick Boseman, you know, talks about the most, the most emotional part of this movie, right? Uh, he, he he just happens to come at the right place. George had placed that camera. We had it on a dolly. We had it on a slider. We could slightly move in and come in close up. It, you know, it was, it, it, and it just became alive. It didn't become, it was, you know, I was really scared at the beginning. Like we had 14 days. It was a short shoot altogether. We had 30 days to shoot this movie, but you know, we were like 13 or 14 days of the movie was in this basement and it was wow. the last three weeks. And, uh, I'm going like, how am I going to go to work every day in this small space? I'm going to go crazy. But it never felt that way. It never felt for one moment that I was trapped in this room. It was inspiring every single time because every scene was so emotional and so came so alive with the actors that it never felt stale. And, uh, you know, we, you know, that was also, that's interesting because, you know, at the beginning it's not how I'm going to change the lighting in this room to keep it, you know, interesting. But, you know, George was very adamant. He wanted to feel Chicago to be just hot all the time, mm. hot and sweltering and you can't escape the heat. You can't escape the sun. So, you know, that's how we ended up actually putting a small little window in this basement room just to feel like the heat and the sun coming in. That's an interesting choice, too. And and earlier on, you had mentioned that that was something you added in. It wasn't originally going to have a window, this basement space. I love having that window. I think for some, like for me, and you see this whenever anybody's tackling. Actually, I was just talking to um, Queen's Gambit um, art mm -hmm. director, uh, not art director, a uh, production designer yeah. um, yesterday. And we, we there was a discussion about like, how are you creating underground spaces. And sometimes the only way you really even get it is if you have a little sliver of the real world outside. Yeah, I think that window really helped ground this space. Yeah. Well, I was interested because it really was 
written at the beginning as a, as a space that had no nothing to the outside. And, you know, in a way, George explained it to us as like the underbelly of a slave ship that they just can't get anywhere out. Mm. You know, and it was, it, it only became, like, I felt like, obviously for me, it was like, oh my God, if I could just have a little window or something of daylight coming in that I could justify lighting, so it's not just one light bulb in the room, right? And, uh, you know, Mark Ricker, the production designer, was very much on my side, but, um, you know, you also don't want to change the story. You know, you also don't want to go to director and say, ah, you know, like visually it would be more interesting when the story was really about them being trapped in this room and no escape. So I kind of had gone like, I'm going with the no window. I'm just going with the story and, you know, it's going to be difficult. But we ended up going to a, a scout where we, the production designer, just wanted us to see the texture of the walls and the, and the floors that he was going to be. I mean, that, that basement was built on a stage. Actually, it was like an old mill in um, Pittsburgh. Uh, and the one thing we used was like it had an old brick floor. So when you see the floor of the of the basement, it's actually the real actual floor. Oh, wow. And he built around this because it was so beautiful. And um, But he wanted us to see the texture of this, you know, we, we went to an old factory and he wanted us to see the, the texture of the walls and, and, and we walked into this one room where it had this tiny little window on top, the sun came through perfectly, it hit us and it just looked a bit like maybe referenced later the Caravaggio paintings um, Yes, in, yes in, exactly in, in terms of how that light came in and how the walls fall, you know, got dark and it all became about this person. And it was like, you can't reach it because it's up too high. There's bars in front of the window, but it feels like there's an outsider. And, you know, once we saw it, you know, it was actually George turned around and goes, you know what, I, I see the what that can give us, right? And I can see how they can actually enhance the story more than we thought at the beginning. And so we ended up, putting this, but it was, you know, it's, it's, I lit this, this space with a two by three window. That was it, right? Yeah. That's my one big light source. And, you know, I, at, at one point I was, I thought I could change the daylight coming the sun can be behind the building. And it, that's, you know, once I started playing with this a little bit and prep and everything, I felt like, wow, it's going to take away from the story. The story is that it's so hot all the time. The sun is in there. They can't escape. You know, it's even at the end when Levy comes in and, and he's pacing the room and he's breaking the one door that had a little bit of light in there and he's coming into this old, I don't know what it was, a shaft that had, you know, it's four walls and a skylight, right? Nowhere to escape from. That I felt like I didn't want to really change the lighting that drastically because it still had to feel like a place that was just so hot and sweltering that you can't escape. So I kept it because it was also like the one thing that we felt is like, and, you know, I have this philosophy, anything, anyways, like the camera shouldn't take over the visual shouldn't take over the story. You don't ever distract anything with the camera or with lighting from story because as soon as the audience starts looking and wow the lighting is so beautiful or the camera is so interesting it's like they're not thinking about what the actors are saying and you know mm. and, and in some movies they're more visual and it works great and I, in this movie you know it was it was very important not to do this right and it, and it was interesting it was it, it started in it, it, 
in prep, um, I don't know if we want to switch on it. Well, well let me just ask you, because you said that the set was built. Um, mm -hmm. Did you have false walls at all? Or did you create an actual 360 space for yourself? No, we created a 360 space. And there is actually a couple, um, there's the one scene where we're literally going 360 around the space where uh, Levy is... Um, fighting with Cutler and they have this knife fight and it goes all around the piano. It goes around, uh, you know, the room and we shot 360. So the, the room was built, the room, I lit the room so you can shoot 360 in it. Um, the other thing was, is like, we, you know, like I lit it so I could switch really fast from one side to the other, because it was always the main thing was, is like, once these actors got into character, once they got into these emotional, you know, parts that they had to go through, you did not want to interrupt them. You didn't want to go like, oh, let's go back to your trailer and spend three hours while I'm lighting now the other side. Right. Yeah. So it was lit pretty well, 360. Um, I did when I came around and my my window light became a complete front light. I did soften it a little bit. But that was really it. And then, you know, it was, you know, I had it kind of created that I can, you know, move quickly in this room. Um, we did have false mall. I mean, our production designer marketed a fabulous job because it was, again, speed, right? But it was just basically half the wall. We just opened like a door. I could back up or it would just close behind me. And sometimes we would do this. We'd have the camera there. We'd come around and while we're shooting, the door closes and oh, we wow. can shoot into that direction, right? So it was it was really cleverly built. Um, well, when you're lighting for a 360 space, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure there's compromises that have to be made. So what, what are like the essentials for you? Like what are the... Uh, um, you, knowing that you have to compromise a little bit, what do you have to have in a 360 space to make it work for you? You know, the, I try no matter what. It's like my safety light, I think, is if I have a ceiling that I can hang a softbox, I will. Whether I use it or not, uh, whether I use maybe 1% or 2% or 10% of the light of it, I have it there, right? I, I always try to have like a big softbox that I can lower into the frame or, or lift because it lower it gets obviously it wraps around, yeah, you know, the actors more. But that's sort of my safety. So I have like some level of fill in there that I need, light fill in there that's super soft that comes from the top that but never feels really off coming from the top because it's so low, uh, but I have it there. And, uh, and then it's, you know, I was lighting through the window, but it was slightly diffused, even though it felt really hot. So when I came around, I could, you know, get away with the hard light, even though, I mean, you know, when I had time and I kept, you know, it was not in one shot, I would go and soften it more. Uh, but it was, it was really, I mean, going back to reference Caravaggio paintings and lighting, it was like one strong light source in this room that came from outside and that I filled a little bit with like, you know, the practicals gave me a motivation to, to put a little bit of, you know, highlights against walls of, or gave me the motivation to actually fill them a little bit. And, and it was important for George to have light in their eyes. And I don't know if you've noticed it in a movie, they have eye lights in yeah. their eyes most of the time, whenever I can, even though sometimes that feels, you know, I feel I have a hot, 
you know, it feels slightly artificial sometimes because, you know, where is this light coming from that gives that spark in the eye? But you have that spark and you immediately get drawn into the eyes. And that was important for us in this movie, right? That, that you're drawn into the actor's eyes because that's where the emotion comes from. So I had put like a lot, you know, like I had on the floor of this, of the, in this room, I had really like small lanterns, um, on the floor or these light mat fours that I just would lay a bit of an angle. And I had those, I had those everywhere in the room, wherever I can. And um, when I'm at my DIT station with the monitors, I have my dimmer operator right next to me. And um, he has control of all these eye lights. So, you know, it was interesting the one time when, when uh, um, Levy, Chadwick Boseman, it's that one traumatic scene where he comes, it's my favorite shot, right? He comes towards the camera. For some reason, everyone is at the right place. My operator is at the right place. My dolly grip is at the right place. He had to slide on the camera. The dolly grip moved in because he was so emotional. The Kirk Gardner is my A-camera operator. He pushed in on the slider at the same time. So you get this kind of crossover that gets like closer to his eye line and you're pushing in at the same time. And I was like, I had this eyelid on the floor and I'm going like, oh, I just want a little bit more spark in his eyes. And I already, my dimmer of Eric, he had, he goes, I got you. And he had already like brought it up a little bit. Right? So it was like one of those moments, you know, afterwards we all cried because he was so emotional. But it's just one of those things. But, so I had, I, I love playing with dimmers. Uh, I, my dimmer operator nowadays is like one of my most, Know, important people I collaborate with because they're right there, and I do a lot of little light changes with the LEDs. That into and I do stop pulls at the same time at my day, so it becomes like this kind of ballet with my with my dimmer, my DIT, who usually does the second camera on the exposure, and myself and. And uh, yeah, it was like, it's, it was, that's one thing about this movie. It's an amazing collaboration because everyone had to work, you know, being there at the right places with these actors, it wasn't just like planning it exactly because things change and we didn't want to also like have them, you know, marks on the floor. You can't, right. You yeah. can't do any situation yeah. like that. You gotta be there at the right place. And, uh, and it was, you know, our dolly clips and it was our, our operators that just, you know, brought magic to this by being at the right place and by pushing in at the right place or by moving over a little bit more when they saw you had to be there. So that was really amazing. I, I, I love the collaboration in the movie. I want to talk about the camera package you chose, the lens package, and shooting outside because you do go outside a couple times in this film. But before we get there, I just want to mention MZ Education for Creatives. We love those guys. They sponsor the show and they support us, so you should be supporting them. Now, MZ is all about education for creatives, so it's perfect for us here at Go Creative Show. Um, I love it because, first of all, it's really high quality really high quality. The education's great. The production of it is excellent. I mean, you're dealing with people in the industry making these courses for you. We're talking about educators like Vincent LaFerray, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, uh, does a course called The Art and Technique of Film Editing. So we're dealing with professionals making the content. So you can only imagine how good this content looks and is. 
But it's in all sorts of topics that we all need to know. Directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And yes, you can go to mz.com and buy individual courses, and that's great. But if you become an MZ Pro member, you've got access to the entire library, which is like exactly what we want. I mean, this is the perfect time to hone your skills in filmmaking right? In creative endeavors. This is the time. So head over to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And when you make a purchase, put GCS20 in the checkout code and you'll get 20% off your purchase. GCS20. I want to thank MZ for supporting the show. They support us. You should be supporting them. We love those guys. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. So Tobias, I want to talk about um, the camera package that you chose for this film and the lens package that you chose and why? Because we had mentioned before that you did have some very specific, um, you know, challenges with being mm -hmm. in the same space for such a long time yeah. in such a small space. So what did you ultimately choose? Uh, I, we shot the movie with the Venice Sony camera mm. uh, in a large format and we used the size Supreme Primes. And it was interesting because... You know, I like to change lenses. I'm not a person that uses one set of lenses or one camera. To me, it's more like, well, nowadays the cameras are like film stocks to me because, you know, they, they you know, what we used to choose like a higher speed film because they had more contrast or more grain and, or, 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 you know, the colors, certain colors that came with the film stock. Now to me, it's a little bit like this with, with digital cameras, right? I pick a digital camera for certain movies. Um, same with lenses. The one thing was knowing being in this space, I wanted a smaller camera. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a choice between at the time the Alexa LF was out as a large format camera, but uh, it's a large body and it's bigger and it's heavier. And the uh, mini LF wasn't out yet or just had been coming out, but there wasn't enough cameras around. And um, so I chose the Sony Venice because of its size. And uh, I had done a movie with it before. I actually got introduced to it by my daughter, who is an upcoming director, and she and a really good DP friend of mine shot this uh, and shot a small uh, demo film, a short demo film for the size Supreme lenses, and uh, they used the Sony Venice camera and. Um, and the DP is John Joffner, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, yeah, he is one of the most talented DPs that I know. And uh, the two of them did this short film, and it was so beautiful that I ended up going, like, wow, I want to use that camera and this lenses on my next film. And I used it on a Netflix movie, Spencer Confidential, with Pete Burke. And then I used the camera with Ender's lenses on a small short film, Refugee, before I started doing my rainy. So I was familiar with the package. But quite honestly, I didn't think I was going to use this size Supreme. My idea was, it's a period piece. Um, I'm probably going to use, I, I wanted to explore anamorphic, older anamorphic lenses. I wanted to explore maybe older large format lenses like the Canon K35s or the Leica Amps. So I got a whole, like three, four, I was like four, three different packages. I got the K, Canon K35 sent out by Kessler Camera to Pittsburgh when I did my first camera test. Um, the Leica Amps, the, um, and I got anamorphic lenses. Um, so you were thinking anamorphic with this that lens pairing because it was a period piece taking place in the 20s. Well, 20s, and also just like I like the characteristics. I wanted to have like maybe a little bit more characteristics to the... Um, 
to the to the image and yeah. and to the lenses. But um, and then I just for safety I brought out another set of the size Supremes, just thinking like I'll show George what the difference is. And um, we put the I, I shot all the lenses, and I usually in my camera tests um, I do um, you know extreme wrap focuses and I go extreme close-ups and I, I and I put lens flares in it just to see how they react. And um, after I shot and, and I used proper, you know, the, the production designer uh, gave me like colors of the set, uh, like on flats and um, Anne Ross, the costume designer gave me, you know, costumes to test. I do that all for my lens tests just to see how they react to color and camera and everything. But uh, once the test came back and I watched them with George um you know, I really like the Can- Canon K35s because they flare a little bit more. They have a little bit more you know, softness to the edges. But he just felt that um, he didn't want to distract anything with the lenses, right? He wanted to be able to, he didn't want to have too much breathing in the focus pulse. Uh, he didn't want to distort too much on the wider end of the lenses. And we wanted to be as wide and close as we could, Um to the actors, just to be have the intimate relationship between the camera and the actors to be close to them. So, Do you, um, wh- why did he not want that? He just did not want to distract. Just anything stylistically, from, he just wasn't interested in it. Yeah, he was just like he, he he felt like if I if I if if I'm aware of a lens of the characteristics of a lens, it's taking away from the actors possibly, right? And and that was the one thing that I learned in that test was like, okay, I can't, I don't want to do anything that takes away from the performance. Mm. And, uh, and you know, the size Supremes are great. They're beautiful lenses and you can get very close with them. They have very little distortion on the wider end. And uh, I'm very happy that we ended up using them. Um, I did soften them a little bit. I used actually a Tiffin glimmer glass. It's called, um, it's a bronze glimmer glass. It's a diffusion filter that has a little bit of warmth in the highlights. It creates a little warmth in the highlights. Uh, I hadn't used this filter for many, many years, but um, I've used it before on a commercial on darker skin and I really like what it did to the highlights and I kind of like in the last moment when we were testing I brought a whole bunch of filter packages out just to see what I wanted to use uh, I ended up bringing the glimmer glass out and that was our that was our diffusion we used throughout the whole movie wow I'm looking at it now just the Tiffin glimmer glass um yeah, yeah I mean well so what what did this do to highlights and then you had mentioned also for darker skin what what is it what does it give you you know, it, 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 it blooms because, you know, the heat and the sweat that we wanted to show, I wanted to kind of bloom the highlights a little bit. Yeah. And that diffusion filter just blooms highlights a little bit. You'll see it like it just diffuses or gives it a bit of a halo around highlights just slightly. But it has also, it, that filter comes as a regular glimmer glass or as a bronze glimmer glass. The bronze is really as, I call it always the gold glimmer glass and drove my camera systems crazy because I thought it had more of a gold feeling than a bronze feeling to it. But um, it's called the you know, bronze glimmer glass from Tiffin. And it just puts also a slight warmth into the highlights uh, that uh, just worked really well for, uh, for this movie, I felt. Uh, outside, I added, and this is just me coming from the old film days, um, 
uh, I added an antique suede filter that's kind of a slightly warming filter, even though, of course, you can do this in the DI later. You can add that warmth, but I wanted to bake it into the film. And uh, so I, I, I did that in the test. I took that test uh, to Company 3 in New York and looked at the big screen, looked at all the lenses, looked at all the filters. And, you know, my, my color, my colorist, Stefan Sonnenfeld, who I've done a lot of work with over the years, you know, he, he said, go with it, right? Even though, I, I mean, he could tell me, he goes, I can add it later if you want to, but if you feel, you know, you want to add it to the dailies or you want to add it right now, just put it on. And we did. And I thought, it, you know, it gave this kind of warmth to the exteriors that's hard to create. Not that hard in the DI, yeah, but, in post, uh, yeah. in post, but I, I, I wanted to have it there. Are you just, you know, is it kind of your cinematic philosophy overall to do as much as you can in lens and not rely so much on DI. Yeah, it's, it's not that I don't want to rely. Obviously, DI is an amazing tool, and we all use it, and and we all can make our images really look, you know, so much. I mean, I have so much respect when I look at old movies and cinematographers and what they had to do to get it right, right? And it's just, you know, I mean, I started like this in the audience. I know what it was like to have to do this, but, you know, we got so accustomed to saying that, oh, let's just put, we can add a little grad at the end, or I can fix this, or I can fix this. Yeah. Which we can, but uh, I still want to do it if I can. I want to do it in camera. I want to see it on my monitor um, when I'm shooting. I always add grads when I can, if I want to, if I need to. Uh, yeah, it's like um, if I can get it done in the camera, it just makes me, that's just how I feel. That's my job, right? I, I want to give it as close as I can. Um, but yes, the DI is an amazing tool nowadays. And I find, like, if I want to say something, the DI colorists get not enough credit these days, right? They come at the end, at the last, you know, after everyone else's credits. And they have so much to do with how movies look these days, right? Yes, they'd probably say they come in at the end and fix everything. <laughs> fix well, they, the they, they can't fix it. You know, it's not even fixing, but it is co it's a collaboration, right? Yeah. You're basically, you know, repainting your images in a sense, or you can, or you can influence it. But, you know, the, you know I find, you know, um, colorists are amazing artists, right? And, and they don't quite get enough credit, I find, these days um, for what they do. I mean, they're rock stars between us. There you between go. us cinematographers, they're rock stars. We want them, and we know how valuable they are to us. But I think the public doesn't know how valuable they are to us. So. Absolutely. Sometimes you want to just keep that away, too. It's like you that that's the enjoyment of watching a film for people that don't really know the industry. It's just You just watch it. You just feel something from it. You don't worry about how it, how it got there. And I think that's kind of cool, too. And we got a question from uh, Renato on Instagram. Um, how do you create cinematography that evolves through the storyline when shooting in such a small variety of locations? My guess is he's talking specifically about this film, but you could take that in general, too. Um, is there something that you think about when you're, you know, thinking about your cinematography that evolves over time to the storyline? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, we all, you know, we all want to tell the story, the same story that is being told by the actors, by the writer, by everything. We want to tell visually and we want to enhance it and we're going to complement it. Um, you know, but I find a lot of times I, I can go in with like ideas and, you know, I go in with the direct, in prep with the director. You know, I like to know 
as much of what their vision is as possible, whether it's using you know, photography as references, other movies as references, talking about the style, what it is, whether, you know, whether you want to start with wider lenses in the movie and, and that we close longer lens, whatever, whatever works for the story, right? But suddenly, you know, at the, when it comes to getting on the day shooting, I find, or when you start working, a film evolves itself, right? With the production design, with the costume design, with the, you know, the actors with the block. Like, that's when, to me, it becomes all alive. And that's when I'm there, you know, it's a collaboration between all of us, right? So I, I can't go in there, I find, with a single, you know, vision of this is how I'm going to make this movie look because it is a collaboration between all of us, right? So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you you know, I ideally I want to do things to the story that you don't necessarily are aware of, but as a, as an audience, you go like, oh yeah, visually it transcended me into this time or it took me into this world or, yeah, I mean, definitely, um, you know, but it, that's different for any, for every movie, right? Whichever way it is, like you know, my, the movie I shot after Marini was Palmer. We shot that all with K30, Canon K35s because I wanted to get like a little bit more of a grittier and it worked for that story and it was supposed to feel a little grittier and we shot it all handheld um, and uh, and that worked for the story because it, sh- it should feel as real as possible and felt like more, more of a documentary style movie than a really planned movie. So yeah, every every movie obviously is different, and every movie you want to you want to have a plan and you want to have an idea. Whether yeah, but that really evolves throughout the shoot for me. Yeah, let's talk about your opportunities to film outside on Ma Rainey's Black, um, Black Bottom. Um, because you do go out every once in a while, and it's something that you hint towards when you're in that basement space. You always know that there's a world out there. So when you finally get there, how do you approach it? Yes, well, <laughs> it's one of those things. I came in very late, only with like 13 days prep. And, and the first wow. thing, all the locations were picked already, right? And and the first thing, one of the first things we went to was this street with the recording studios where we're going to shoot for three and a half, or four days, all the exterior scenes. And, um, and it was really the only street in Pittsburgh that we could turn into a Chicago in 1927, right? It was, it was, but you know, for a DP, I looked and go like, oh my God, it faces the wrong way, right? Like it faces that the building was not at the north side. So looking at the recording studio, I had the sun behind me all day oh, long wow. being flat. And then also, you know, it, it, it would move behind the building. So it would get very shadowy in the middle of the day. And then it would come to sun out at the end of the day. It was kind of a location that in normal circumstances, if I had a lot of prep beforehand and I was with a production designer and there was choices... I would say that, oh, can you not just find a building that would face, face North right? is in the South, right? So you have like, you can actually, you know, you have it as a backlight, it's more consistent because that's usually what you try to do is like in an exterior scene, it's the consistency of the light, right? And and now I was faced with like, 
shoot in the wrong direction, sun behind me. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just control the light. I'm going to put a big 40 by 60 silk over top of the whole thing and light it. Well, that location also had like uh, a lot of electrical wires that we couldn't reroute. And uh, it was, I couldn't put a big crane in there with a big overhead. So it was more like patching it together with small 20 by 20 fly squatters wow. um, and, uh, and and hanging, you know, diffusion material on ropes between the buildings wherever I need to patch it in. But I had an amazing crew in, in Pittsburgh that uh, worked so hard. And, and then we ended up just using, uh, you know, normally I would just get it, you know, if money was no object or if we were at the right place where the equipment was more available, I would get a big LIX uh, B or BB light that um, actually is a BB light that has like, I don't know how many, eight, 10, uh, 6K pass or, or, or 12K pass on there that you really can create a sun in the middle of the day. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't available in Pittsburgh. So we ended up bringing in these remote HMIs, remote movable HMIs called LRXs that are 18Ks. We put six. They were uh, uh, LRXs, two. you said? Yeah, LRXs, yeah. They're, uh, they come in different sizes. We use the 18K PARs. And they're basically just like a park, like a big 18K par HMI that comes on a remote head that you can then, you know, focus and, and, mm. and control uh, from, you know, from your DMAR board. And we put six of, we put three and three on two condors and all together, very close together, became like this very kind of sun-like um, light that uh, I thought worked quite well for the exterior. So I, I covered everything as much as I can, patched it in as much as I can, used this one, you know, these six LRXs as my sunlight and created this kind of sun that was consistent throughout the three, four days that we shot there. And, um, and again, I, I made them really bright. I had them spotted as much as I can during the daytime and um, to create that heat. And yeah. I think it, it, it worked, right? The accident scene is, is a, you know, we shot the accident scene over a day and a half or two days um, where it's a very consistent light. But that's sort of my my main thing. It's like, how do I control the light uh, and have the continuity light in, during the daytime? And and then you are, um, you know, very dependent on your first AD. We had a great first AD, Shelly Siegler, who helped me. Like, for example, some of the wider shots, I couldn't control the line, right? We had to shoot at the right time. For example, when the, when our uh, three musicians first walk up to the recording studio, we do our first big establishing shot that starts um, high up, looking down at them, and then drops down and reveals the, the city we shot it of, uh, yeah. um, of Chapman uh, Hydroscope Arm. And... Um, and we came down and we see the whole city. The city was, you know, past our street was visual effects. And, um, but I had to shoot, there's a sun in the picture. And it was actually reference of um, Mark Ricker had found a print of an old painting uh, of Chicago that really had all those tones and color tones uh, and a sun in there. And it 
felt like one of those sweltering hot days. And that was one of the references that George loved. And he said, this is how I want the exteriors to look. And it's interesting, if you see the picture, it's very similar to the exterior street that we shot. But he wanted to have the sun right there. So I had to wait, really. For, I had to shoot this at the right time. There was no choice. Yeah. And uh, But we just scheduled it way, and I was lucky the sun was right at the right place when we shot it, and we had to wait for it. But he was patient for it. So you have to, for, for some of the white shots, we just had to be patient for it. Same thing when they first walked up through Chicago. There was like four or five scenes when they're just walking the streets. I just shot them at the right time of the day. Um, and that was that's easier though, because it's like one shot here, one shot there. I can schedule this with the first AD. And if they're willing to help me, then you can make it work. But uh, for something like on that street in front of the recording studio, we're shooting over three days and the sun is in or out, the clouds come in. You really want to control it as much as you can, which... It was hard there, but we ended up doing it, and I thought the end result was good. <laughs> yes. I want to talk about the two, um, the, the, in the opening scene of Ma Rainey's, um, there's two performances, mm-hmm. and they are just so gorgeous, so beautiful, and, you know, I guess more in your wheelhouse at the beginning of this because you had mm-hmm. done Dreamgirls. So you have yes. this experience of doing performance. Um, yes. <clears throat> talk to me about the way that you approach cinematically from a lighting standpoint, these performance numbers where mm-hmm. they're also at the beginning of the film. So you're yeah. just being introduced to the characters. There's a lot riding on these moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've learned, I've learned so much from two lighting designers, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower, who were my lighting designers mm-hmm. on Dream Girls that I worked with. Because, mm-hmm. you know, as a DP, as much as we think we can do everything, theatrical lighting is very difficult. And if you don't do it every day, I don't know who, who you think. I don't know. It's, it's really hard, right? But, I mean, I so when I did Dream Girls with them, and they actually did one sequence on Beauty and the Beast, uh, be my guests, they designed the lighting for. They're just so... They just know a story, what light fixtures and how to recreate this. So I learned a lot for them. Here, I was kind of left on my own. Uh, I didn't have them and I had to do it on my own. But what I learned from them was like, you know, you still want to be motivated by what happened at that time. What happened in 1927? What did they have? Right. And, and for, you know, for the first performance when she's in this tent, uh, they had some oil lamps hanging. There was no electricity, really. They had, um, you know, they had these little footlights on the ground. And, um, and it, it, it was not, it's supposed to be really like, you know, I looked at references of that time and it was really flat, right? Because there was no, like, real. You know, there was no theatrical lighting. There was no park hands. There was not, not at that time in, in, in this, in this kind of circumstance. So I just, I did not want to change that. Right. And I wanted to go with it. And, and one of the things for George was that, for example, the first sequence is he really wanted to show how Marini interacts with her, uh, with her people, with her fans. Right. Uh, and so he, and, and he didn't want her to be interacting with her, band members, for example. So everything had to be tied in. The first performance was all tied in between the audience and her, right? Every shot was either over the audience or over her to the audience. Right. Right? And we left kind of the, we left the band behind. And it was just to show her connection with that, with, 
with them. And uh, I did highlight her a little bit, right? Because I wanted to have a stand out because that's just, I feel like I want, I didn't want to, because first when I just saw all the footlights and just that kind of ambient, you know, light that was in the room, it's just, she didn't stand out. And I wanted, so I did put a little bit of a, of not a spotlight, but a definitely focused light on her um, that, um, that just brought her out, right? And then the tent itself, I had a um, balloon in there, a tungsten balloon, because there was nowhere to hang lights. Sure. Um, I had those uh, tent poles where I had some uh, LED chimeras, uh, the airy sky panels with chimeras on there. They gave me a little soft backlight where I needed it. Uh, I would fake that a little bit. But uh, in general, it was all about, like, how would this look at the time, right? And it was more about them interacting with each other and the, the connection she had with the audience then about the lighting. Then it was interesting when we got to Chicago where she obviously was more successful and it was more of a lighting show and but she had just come to the north. George actually felt like he did not want to have any connections with the audience at the time because she hadn't connected with them. And so he didn't really want to see any of the audience. So we ended up, we were supposed to shoot it at a real... Uh, theater, but that fell apart for location reasons and all kinds of reasons. So we ended up building it on stage. Mm. And then the question was like, the audience, what are we going to do? And George said like, uh, you know, because I don't really want to see the audience. We don't have to have audience there. Right. So I go like, well, how do you shoot this without an audience? At least you want to feel them or something. Right? He goes, no, just light it in a way where you think they're there, but they're not there. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's a challenge. <laughs> because we're doing some shots behind, right? Where we're, where we're, wow. where we're shooting at a black space, but you don't want to take the audience out thinking that you're not in that space. You're not in a real theater. So it was like, I went like, okay, well, you know, if I shot it in a way where my, for example, we had spotlights or there's footlights on them too, I make them so hot from behind that in your lighting ratio, if you didn't quite do it right, the audience would really fall into blackness yeah. and you wouldn't see them, right? Uh, I mean, we would have to hang, you know, ambient balloons in there too in a regular theater to bring up the audience. I mean, okay, let's just not light anything there. Let's just let it go fall to black, but make you feel like that spotlight, for example, makes you really feel like, wow, there's such a bright spotlight. Your eyes get, you know, adjusted to that light level. You can't really see anything. I don't think anyone really noticed that there is no audience. I didn't this. notice it at all. No, I know, right? It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I know, and it was like, it was really, I felt really good about that because it was, and then this was more about her and her band members, because now she has to have a band, band member supporting her. She's in a different place, and now she's connected. And so it's all about them. And it's the first time where where Levy actually uh, kind of gets out there and kind of poses and, and, and wants to steal the show. And that was one of the things where, where then, and that was George very clever, he goes, like the, the spot operator would actually suddenly be attracted to Levy playing the trumpet. And he'd move the spotlight away from Moraine and, and hit him with it. So we did that. And suddenly it's like your eye gets focused onto uh, Levy at this point. She realizes that she wants the spotlight back. She, you know, then it gets back onto her. It's actually, there's a little bit of an editing thing in there where at one point there's a spotlight before it was actually on him, which bugs me a bit. But that's just part of, you know, that was one of the things probably went wrong in one setup and then it was used in the editing. But 
but no one notices it. So it's like small things that you see where you go, oh, God, wasn't supposed to be quite there yet. But, uh, so I thought it was, that was good. But there again, I just used like our, um, our set decorator, Karen O'Hara, who's amazing. She found me really period correct park hands that they used at the time that wow. we had off to the sides. And I used those for like 75% of all the cross lights on the actors. Um, I ended up adding like source force to them just to spot areas that I couldn't reach. But really the motivation was just coming from those, from those cross lights from Parkins that they used to have. Um, and then, yes, I, I had like a little bit of fill above the spotlight. I had force carry sky panels through chimeras and we just give a little glow coming from, you know, I felt like the spotlight and the smoke that we used just to see the spotlight would create a little bit more ambient light. So we used those for ambient light. We backlit that curtain a little bit just to pop it out a little bit. We, we added things to it, but, but it was also simple because at 1927, there wasn't really that huge theatrical lighting yet. And we didn't want to get into it, right? We wanted to keep it simple and, uh, and real to the time. So I was able to do it. If it was something in the fifties or forties, I probably would go back and see if I can get, you know, a true feature of Peggy Eisenhower to help me out because it is, it is very difficult to do proper theatrical lighting. In Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Chadwick Boseman, Viola Davis giving absolutely stunning, incredibly powerful performances. Um, yeah, everybody's talking about it. Uh, from your perspective as a cinematographer working with these two, what was your experience like? Well, they're, they're just such incredible professionals and you know, they're so dedicated to their craft that it is just really inspiring, right? And, and uh, I mean... Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, and be they're both inspirations for your life, right? When you see them and when you see how they conduct themselves and, uh, you know, knowing what Chad, not at the time, no one knew. I didn't know anything yeah. about it, but in hindsight, you go like, wow, this is like, he went through all the, he had all this to deal with and he was able to put a performance out like this and be there every day and be concentrated and, and, and really live for that part, it was just in, in hindsight now, it's like, wow, I'm so lucky. I was able to experience this in my life and, and, and being part of this. So that's incredible. But yeah, he was, you know, I, I'm usually very with trying to be as respectful as I can with actors and not be in their face with my lighting and giving them special marks. You know, I try to, I just give them as much freedom and I don't want to interrupt their thought process. And when, when, for example, Chad with Paul Viola, when they came on set, they were in this part, right? And you felt like, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to get in there because I don't want to take them out of what they are, right? And and I had really like it was always like a nice good morning to Chadwick, or sometimes it was like Chadwick, can you maybe just move out of this corner a little bit because I can't really like you there. There was a few times where I had to really say to him, like, please, you know, I might need a little help here, but I don't like doing it. Or I didn't like doing, especially on this movie, but but it was always like he was very respectful. But we both, you know, there was you know, I can't say like we would be hanging out and doing small talk ever, right? But it was on my last the last set we we wrapped. We wrapped at like three o'clock in the morning um with the last scene of the movie in this basement and um 
and Chadwick comes walking up towards me and I go like, oh my God, like, what's going on? Right? And he gives me a hug and he says, thank you. Right? And I'm going like, oh my God. Like, it was just like, he suddenly was out of his part. He was not in character anymore. And he could come up to me and just go like, thank you for all your amazing work, right? That you did for us. And I went like, oh my God. He, he, he knew what I was doing, obviously, right? And, uh, but he was so in character the whole movie that we didn't really have that connection to the, the last moment i'll never forget i'll never forget this obviously right because getting a hug on the last movie from him at the last scene is pretty amazing oh, so what a great moment yeah, yeah incredible yeah, i mean there was you know uh, you know in you know i can start crying in this any time about this movie right because it was so emotional right and, and i mean there's one scene where he's talking about his mother being raped and his father being killed. I mean, literally, there was not a dry eye uh, on set after we caught, after George called cut. It was like, whoa. Uh, you know, every, every, every pain, every, everything in history came out of that performance, right? Everything that's been going on, everything that's going on right now, right? Where you just go, like, you know, it's such a timely movie in a sense, right? That's why it's, um, that's why I'm so happy that it's become that it is being recognized right now, and I think you know hopefully it'll help us all. Right, and I feel same thing with Palm a little bit. I hope it opens up eyes right now what's going on in the world and and how we have to just be more open and more peaceful and whatever comes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've got a couple of um, questions from our uh, social media people out here. Let's see, wait a minute. On um, YouTube, Funny Tube Studios wants to know, how do you keep your style consistent across multiple budget levels? I'm sure he's referring to the fact that you've done some huge, big blockbuster type films and then also mm-hmm. some smaller films as well. So how do you keep it consistent? You know, obviously on a, on a smaller budget, I can't do the big lighting setups that I would do on something like Beauty and the Beast, right? Like on Beauty and the Beast, we probably spend half a million dollars just silking in the village at the beginning where she's, where she's wandering around, just the opening sequence, um, opening sequence musical dance number. And we shot that over six days and it had to be consistent. I just silked the whole thing in the whole village. This you couldn't do on a smaller budget movie, but you also wouldn't shoot this, right? So I feel like, you know, like I don't really like. I just want to do the best work I can for every movie with what I have, right? Like when I did just a, after after Marini, I did Palmer. Palmer is a just five million dollar movie at its best, and you know we didn't have any money. We shot in twenty five days. I had a very small crew, no pre lights, no not, not nothing that I am used to. But I come from their world, right? I come from the world of like documentaries when I started out and, and smaller movies and, and I still love it. And I still also want to feel like I can do it. Right. And it's one of the things also, I feel like, um, uh, you know, as a cinematographer, like I don't want to be type cast in a sense that I can only do big movies. I mean, that's, that's it. it, it sometimes you get that, right. You get like, Oh, he only does like, you know, the, battleships or the or the, you know those big huge movies effects movies and he can't do an intimate like small movie with like you know and and you want to you want to have your variety in your in your resume in a sense of or i do i want to be able to people go like well i have a small movie i want you know i i want i want to be able to use tobias he can shoot in 25 days he can do it with like a small crew and we did and you know i wouldn't do anything it's interesting with those scenes i shot in palm i really wouldn't do anything different even if i had another 
$5 million for lighting in this movie, right? I wouldn't have done anything really different. It's small contained locations. It's, you know, they're all real locations and it feels that way. And, uh, you know, I think my lighting package, I, I had four, three, I love this, those Airy Sky panels, the 360s, the bigger ones, because I can, they're so easy to move around. You don't need much electricity for those are where my lights coming through windows in small locations. I mean, I had a couple big 18, HMIs just in case I needed them. But we really use small things like these new Astera tubes that you can hang anywhere you want to. Yeah. And uh, and we've been really small. But, you know, I look at it and I go, like, I wouldn't do this any different, right, on a, on a big movie. I would still light it exactly the same. Uh, and we're talking about Palmer on, on Apple TV Plus starring yeah, Justin Timberlake. And yeah. I, I wanted to take... Um, is it out yet? I've only seen the trailer. No, Did it... it's coming out in a couple of weeks. Coming couple out of weeks. the end of the month, yeah. Yeah. So, and certainly when it comes out, you guys should definitely check that out on Apple TV plus. Um, let's take a couple minutes and talk about it just to kind of mm -hmm. get, let people know what it is. I mean, I've seen the trailer. It looks really interesting. You've referenced it a couple times in our interview. It mm -hmm. sounds like you're really excited about it. So let, tell me about it. Yeah. It's just a, it's, it's a beautiful story too. And it's a very timely story too, where, you know, um, this character Palmer played by Justin Timberlake comes back. He's, he was, you know, he did something bad when he was younger and he was in prison and he came out and he has to live with his grandmother. And, uh, and by circumstances, he gets introduced to this younger boy that uh, is left behind by his mother and lived with the grandmother for a moment. Grandmother dies and oh, I shouldn't be saying this, all those things, but spoiler, hey, he, spoiler. Uh, <laughs> I know, I don't want to spoil it right now. I have to be careful what I say right now, but uh, yeah, so let's maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not good. But it, it's really a very intimate story between these two characters, and they come from two different worlds, and uh, and they have to first collide, but then they have to find a way to live together. And it's just beautiful, and it's just like you know, very tiny what's going on in our world right now. Uh, where but you had mentioned divided. earlier that you decided to shoot the whole thing handheld. Mm -hmm. um, did that decision come from you, from the director? I mean, how, how did you make that decision for this story? Um, it was just like we wanted to, uh, we wanted to feel a little bit, we definitely wanted to have a raw feeling to it, that it was a real, very little lighting, very available light as much as we could. Um, uh, Fisher Stevens is an amazing director who comes from documentary background, also acting, as we know. Um, I had done a, a shoot for him, a part of a shoot. He did a documentary on Formula E, and I was with him in Hong Kong for four days shooting with him. Oh, wow. And uh, that was on a documentary. So we both have documentary background in us, and we both felt like it was the right thing for this movie to be just being flexible, being close to our actors too, and and can also not the locations were so small that it would be hard to put a dolly in there. I mean, we literally shot half the well, a similar, a little similar half the movies in this in this small, real location, small house. It's not bigger than eight hundred square feet. Right? I mean, wow. some of the rooms were ten by ten feet, and and it was. There was no sets. We didn't shoot any sets. And so we wanted to just be nimble. We wanted to be quick. And, but it was like, you know, I'm, you know, I've done a lot of handheld movies with Pete Burke, um, who loves handheld. And we did, uh, you know, it was one of those things where we felt like we don't want to feel like handheld. We want to be the smoothest handheld that you can do. 
Yeah. Uh, it's never, never like, oh my God, the cam. And then we, we did use it. That we, we used the steady cam. We had steady cam with us for certain things where I felt like I don't want, when you're doing track back or you're running with someone, I said, I don't want this, the handheld, right? Because I feel like that's distracting to me. I don't want, I don't want, then I know there's a person with a handheld camera bouncing around that, you know, I'm not a big fan of that, but I'm a fan of like, doing a close-up and just putting that camera on your lap and and being with the actors and being able to push in a little bit if you want to or, or pull back a little bit or move around a little bit or, or just find something that you wouldn't normally find, right? That's, there's, there's a magic to handheld when you have, you know, operators that are in tune with the actors that you don't get when you're locked on a dolly and you're locked or, or, or on a crane or, you know, you, you just don't have that. that, that. So I mean, we both felt like it's a really good tool for, for this movie. And, um, you know, we, uh, we looked at different lenses. We, we actually looked at anamorphic too, but anamorphic was like, it's hard to get lenses that focus very close. And we knew we had a lot of shots with Justin Timberlake in a car driving. It was all available light. Just get the camera in there and drive with him. We want to be close to him. There would have been diopters uh, for some of those lenses because you can't get close enough and then you can't do focus close to your outside. So it felt natural to have lenses that could focus close, which the Canon K35s do. We did want to play a little bit with like flares. We wanted to give it that kind of more raw feeling of like, you know, not flagging lights off and, and getting in. So um yeah it um it worked really well i thought it worked really well and lastly we've got one last question from instagram dams movies asks you what inspires you in light what inspires no what inspires him in light i thought it was what inspires him to light well either one <laughs> the, the, the literal <laughs> written down question here is what inspires him uh... in light so that's kind of interesting when you're looking at light what is the inspiration you get the inspiration, uh, you know, I'm a, you know, I, I think I'm a fairly visual person. I light my house every day, right? Like I, I walk around my house. I have everything on dimmers. It's all, all tungsten bulbs. <laughs> I don't have any fancy, like, you know, light from my iPad. I walk around literally have hand dimmers and everything. And I change the lighting in my house every night. No way. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm very like, um, you know, actually my daughter shot a movie with a friend of mine in my house and, uh, you know, it looked, it looked pretty good lighting wise because it's, it's all like, yeah, I have my house lit like a movie set in a way, right? I, I did like you get it. into, I'm, I'm, did you get into all like the Phillips hue color? No, 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 just, any, no, no. I'm just simple old tanks. I have everything on tanks. I have everything on hand. I mean, I literally walk around my house. Ah, this could come down a little bit. This could come up a little bit. And now my, <laughs> you know, I'm just a kind of person. I love good lighting. I always thought like, you know, if I, you know, I, I would love to light people's homes, right? Because a lot of times I walk into houses and I go, oh my God, like you need my help here, right? Like I, I need to help you light this, right? Because it's like the mood you get, like I walk into kitchens, overhead fluorescent light, I go, I just cut these off. I do the two friends' houses when I go there. I like the houses when I get there and turn off things. Um, but so, and you know, it's just, I... I love beautiful light, right? I do. And, but I also love telling a story with light, uh, you know, where it focuses, you know, I, 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 I use the light to focus your eye to get to certain places. Um, you know, the, 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 how it, how it feels, whether it's cooler or warmer, but it's sensitive to what, how you feel to something, but yeah. And 
you know, I'm not a, you know, I come from my, my, my grandfather was a painter. My grandmother was a painter. I come from a little, you know, background of painters, but I, my brother is a really good painter. I don't have, I can't paint, but I feel like I have a good sensibility for light and composition and what that does. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if it came from them. It's it's interesting because my daughter just started directing now and she has exactly the same sensibility as I do. Like, I, I, I mean, I can walk into her house and go, I wouldn't light it any differently. And, um, and so we... You see everything kind of the same, so it's interesting. So it's definitely well, in me, I think. If this cinematography thing doesn't work out for you, you can always do interior lighting. You can, I, know, I, I mean, thought about this. I, I literally <laughs> thought like it's something we go like when this coronavirus started just now, and everyone's going like, "Oh God, we can never work again," and this and that. Like, like I'll just light houses or like backyards <laughs> or like whatever it is. Like you know, I, I want to, you know, I, I you know, in in a way, if I could, I'd love to light some, you know place too like theatrical place i would like to learn this stuff. i'm so busy with with in the movie world that i that that is obviously not that and it's a big transition and and i'm not sure if i could ever do it but if i had a collaboration with someone like Jude Fisher or Peggy Eisenhower that know this i would love to collaborate on something but then light something different for sure well it's out there in the universe now so we'll see what happens it's out there yes <laughs> Tobias Schiesler, thank you so much for coming on Go Creative Show. The film, of course, is called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. We also talked about Palmer quite a bit, but your resume is just out of control. Beauty and the Beast, Dream Girls, uh, Lone you. Survivor. There's so much on there. So just dive in to Tobias's work and you will be better off for it. Tobias, uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all the listeners and all your followers and uh, big fan. And thank you very much. I want to thank Tobias Schliesler for coming on the show and talking about his fantastic portfolio of work, especially the most recent Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Palmer. Uh, Ma Rainey's is on Netflix and Palmer's on Apple TV+, Plus. so check both of those films out. Um, I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby, for putting the whole show together. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com and Dave Siegel at Siegel Sound for mixing and mastering and making the show sound so good, Siegel Sound. Com. And of course, all things Go Creative Show are at gocreativeshow.com, including a way to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And something, something great going on on YouTube is that we put out exclusive content just on YouTube. So subscribe to us there, hit the notification bell, and you will never miss a, uh, an episode. Uh, also, of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, uh, search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, and all will be good in the world. Of course, I want to thank MZ, our sponsor, Education for Creatives. Find them at Go Creative Show forward slash MZ. Type in GCS20 and get 20% off your purchase. And I want to thank all of the great people that asked questions today. We had, who'd we have? Funny Tube Studios on YouTube, Renato on Instagram, and Dams Movies on Instagram. So thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go. Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. 